Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Movie Lewis Podcast. I'm Dan Enden. Are we doing this already, or is no, this we're just not. a test? Okay, and I am Dan Lyons. And this is what I sound like. This is my Dan Lyons impression. <laughs> that's a pretty just good turn around you again, on a, you again. That's a pretty good one. You can't argue that this is the best Dan Lyons impression you've ever heard. This is like Tenet, the podcast. Let me do my Dan Enden now. Uh, I'm Dan Enden. It's, it's like I'm in the room. <laughs> <laughs> I get the joke there. I professional podcasters in as much as we invest into the art of podcasting we just happen to have not received returns yet i'm waiting on my podcast stimulus check Uh, (laughs) yeah i submitted that as to the pa unemployment office that's my job dude i've heard about all of these dead podcasters that have gotten it it doesn't make any sense (laughs) yeah um seems like the type of thing that we should really like storm the podbean servers over this week we are going to be doing a professional movie podcast. How do you feel about that, Dan? I feel great about it after what's been going on lately. <laughs> I'm sure it will not take long for us to double down and head in the other direction, but as for our first episode of the day, um, we're going to be looking at, for the first time ever in a formal podcast setting, the work of Stanley Kubrick. Um, it's kind of uh, embarrassing that it took this long. Uh, I think certain things had to be done first. Yeah, like Yoga Wizards. Like Little Italy. Yeah. Um, when, you, but when you posted in the group that we were going to do Stanley Kubrick, I feel like 70% of the group was like, what? Yeah, like, real? are you guys capable of having that discussion? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We'll let you know. Um, And, uh, you know, we're going to be focusing mostly on the film Barry Lyndon, Um, and uh, so, you know, if you're looking for our our zany uh, Z-Morning Zoo type um, fuckery, you may want to skip ahead to next week's episode. I mean, you could try to put on, like, your Kubrick voice, your, like, New York Jew voice for all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to defame Stanley Kubrick by reducing him to a Jewish stereotype. Um, uh, uh, some sort of pickle-eating, <laughs> Brooklyn-based snob that some people try to uh, paint him as. No, thank you. Um, anyway, this is a professional movie podcast. Welcome to the Movie Blues Podcast. I am the Chevalier. I'm Dan Enden. And, um, like we said, we're going to be talking serious big boy, big boy stuff today. Everybody get your big boy pants on. Um, first, I'm going to allow Dan Enden to, um, stir us into a conversation about Stanley Kubrick's work, um, leading up to and even beyond Barry Lyndon. Um, so if you were one of those people that came into this podcast and was like, God damn it, I just want to hear about the 1975 period piece, Barry Lyndon, then skip forward. I'm going to guess 28 minutes as you think <laughs> how long this nonsense takes. Um, yeah. Dan, why don't you take him away and we're going to talk a little bit about our man Cube. 
Hypercube. Cube Two. Damn it, you fucker. Got you, fucker. Stanley Cube Two. You put that Hypercube. You put that right on the tee for me, and then snatch it away like Lucy with a football. I need to learn how to share. This is our first, by the way, podcast in the same room as each other since our first episode of season three. Since this is our first in-person podcast since the second strain of COVID arrived. Right. Um, not much has happened in the world since then. We started this podcast during COVID-18, and we are somewhere <laughs> in the late 20s at this point. Uh, yeah. There's been a civil war. There's been a lot of fun yeah. stuff. I was recently listening to the episode where we first um, were talking about COVID, when we were like, yeah, so we're probably going to take like a couple months off from podcasting in the same room, but like we'll probably be back end of summer. <laughs> and that was a year that ago. Was one year ago. <laughs> that was a year ago. I was a different age when I said that. Yeah. Yeah. I was in my twenties. <laughs> yeah, Dan was still in his twenties. He was in a different decade yeah. uh, from me. But um Um yeah. Joe Biden was sentient. Yeah, Joe, Joe Biden was peacefully sleeping in his crypt at that point. He was, <laughs> no one had come to wake him yet. Um, all right, um, anyway. Yeah, so the much debate was had about whether or not we should go through the filmography, because um, those tend to be the less exciting parts of the podcast, and I made the argument that we just did it for Chris Nolan, a far less deserving <laughs> Um And my <laughs> overall argument is that... <clears throat> That section of the Tenet episode was boring because basically every critic critique of each of those films is the same. Okay. Well, I mean, I hate to break it break it to you, but every single movie you're about to list, I'm going to go, wow, I fucking love yeah, that movie. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> I, I'd love to see how you're going to find the variety in that. But all right, you're going to no, get it rolling? Yeah, so I mean, I, my understanding is that you're not very familiar with his early no, work. No, which, Cards on the Table... I have never fully explored uh, his early work. I think some of that, and this plays into why I haven't seen Barry Lyndon, some of that has to do with my presupposition that certain films of his are not going to carry all of his trademarks, and that I'm going to spend kind of the whole time trying to fit it into a box that isn't, you know, the same kind of box as The Shining and, and things like that. Um, you know, in, in, especially with Barry Lyndon. Meaning Linden. like the box of once he had access and to the technology sure. to do his Once wacky. he was able to bloom. I mean, if you yeah. look at these classic directors, not really Kubrick or, or even Spielberg or Coppola, people like that, but going further back than that, a lot of them are pigeon-held into the old studio system, into the old way of soundtracking a movie. Like, right. I, I was watching Spartacus recently, and the music in that is, like, very by the numbers. Totally. It's very, like, every emotion is telegraphed. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not it's interested. before they let Kubrick get like final cut on everything sure it's 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 really just a matter of like it's not that I don't think they're good it's not that I didn't want to explore them it's just I fail to see how they are going to hold up against what I consider to be his signature moves but uh, okay. go ahead yeah so we can I mean the, the first several I, I haven't seen like his early early stuff like his short films and stuff but um the first one I've seen which is I think is his first studio picture is The Killing. Have you ever watched that? Have not. The Killing, it's a neo noir. Um, 1955. Okay. Um, definitely in line with what you were saying before he had really bloomed as um, the, the aesthetic master that he is. Sure. But for a film made in 1955, it's pretty fucking amazing. Cool. Um, so can't really discuss a movie you haven't seen. No, but... But recommend it, huh? Yeah, I recommend The Killing, if for no reason other than a historical data point, because you can see 
you can see the mind at work of someone who wants to be able to do so much more with cinematography than is possible at that time. Sure, and that that is a hallmark of all of his films. Yeah. Um, the pushing of the envelope is what I would expect from anything I, I watch from him at this point. Totally. So I give The Killing, like, in, in the scheme of movies, like, a 7.5 out of 10, but in the scheme of, like, boring 50s movies, I give it, like, a 10 out of 10. Um... Next up, we had Paths of Glory. Have you seen that? Pa- that's another war movie, right? Yeah. That's a World War that, II. That's a anti-war movie, but yeah, it's a war movie. It's, right. a, Kirk, it's I, a Kirk Douglas This boy. is one of the ones that I have seen, yep. but I have no ap- no recollection of whatsoever, other than it's very base aesthetics. This was in high school when I tried to watch everything from Stanley Kubrick after I got his box set. This was one of the ones that I did watch, but yeah. I, I really don't have an impression that was left on me from it. Yeah. Um, I haven't watched Paths of Glory since high school. Um, my recollection is that it was his first um, foray into really utilizing score and soundtrack in okay. a more interesting way. Um, I believe it's Kirk Douglas. I don't remember a ton about it. I remember I liked it. Okay. And I liked it a lot in an age where sitting through a two-hour black-and-white World War II picture was tricky. Right. So. And I will say that to anyone listening to this who is, like, pulling their hair out because we haven't seen the best, like, most seminal, like, early Kubrick films. Like, There's put, 0% chance any of these are the best Kubrick films. Right, but there is some asshole who's probably thinking that. Yeah, and to that asshole, Zimbabwe listeners. To that asshole, I'd say we're trying. We could have not done this. Yeah. <laughs> we could have we could have been across the board been like, yeah, we've seen all of these and we love them. Yeah, we, uh, we no, I mean, we could have just not done Kubrick at all. We could have just been like, let's just watch something terrible like Jupiter Ascending. Like, we're not just going to do that all the time, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, we have class. We have class and we're trying for you guys. And you maybe. know what? We need something to watch for next season's Kubrick episode. Absolutely. So uh, next up we have Spartacus. Okay. Now I can talk about Spartacus a little bit because yeah. when was the last time you saw it? Last time I watched Spartacus was probably also I want to say senior year of high school probably. Okay. So but I've, never, I've watched it several. I watched it several times when I was younger. I've never seen Spartacus. I mean, maybe I've seen it on Turner Classic Movies in an hour chunk at a time totally. because I do recognize um, Douglas in his gladiator garb. I do recognize some of the set pieces, but uh, and I'll have to come back to this after we talk a little bit about Barry Lyndon. Um, but my. God, is this an immaculate movie to look out of your fucking eyeballs? Yeah. Like, I okay. So Barry Lyndon is from 1975. Um, Spartacus is from the 50s. Spartacus is from 1960. 1960. The clarity of the cinematography of Spartacus outranks not only most movies I've ever seen in my life, but even Barry Lyndon. I mean, the clarity of image is striking. And there was this period of time um, when they were switching from black and white to color, where uh, and I don't know how to really explain it. I'm sure somebody who's smarter than I am knows the answers to this. But there's an unquestionable clarity to the images caught in that late 50s, early 60s um, epic movie-making thing where, uh, I mean, and I'm going to bring this back back up again with Barry Lyndon. I just recently watched the Kevin Costner Robin Hood movie from the 90s. Now, okay. now granted, this is 40 years of progress that we're looking at from... Right. From uh, you know Spartacus and Barry Lyndon to something like this, and it it just is the ultimate testament um, to what Kubrick did and was able to achieve. I mean the the lighting uh, in Robin Hood and the cinematography is so just awful compared, yes. and it's almost like one of the I mean reasons, the 90s in general was just such a bizarre time for film, right? For classic like period piece film yeah. as well. That's not the era that you would look to, I think whatsoever. Um, and it just, um, you know, Robin Hood, I'm not even saying that that was a good movie. I just happened to have a connection to it from when I was a kid. 
Um, but you can see, like, when the master's at work. Like, it doesn't, to me, and this always is going to play back into me getting the box set of Stanley Kubrick's movies and Barry Lyndon being in that box set and me seeing that box set and going, I love every single one of these movies, but basically Barry Lyndon is like the supplemental DVD that you don't put in. Totally. Um, and and what's interesting about that is just my perception. My perception at the time, not anymore because I explore all kinds of films now, but my, my perception at the time as a kid that was like obsessed with Fight Club and like discovering 90s auteurs, 2000s auteurs, is that, um, you know, you can't make something boring interesting no matter how hard you try. This oh, is something that totally. I thought as a kid. Totally. Um, and as a kid, it was like, how is a movie about the, you know, chivalry in the 1800s going to interest me? It doesn't matter who made it. Um, it's the same notion kind of um, with uh, Spartacus and things like that. But now going back and seeing it, it is just incredible to see. Uh, you know, like you were saying that the last war movie we talked about was an anti-war movie. Like, as a kid, I'm sure if I had watched the movie you were talking about, I would have said, that's a war movie. Right. But, like, I, I, you know, and this is, with any art, as you grow older, your perception and your expectation changes, um, and you're able to appreciate things that, you know, you can't be faulted for. So, yeah, playing into the whole conversation about Spartacus, it's just like, yeah, this is like a, a movie that on its face is very simple. It's the exact same plot as Gladiator. Right. Any classic gladiatorial story, but I can see, even though... Kubrick took his name off of Spartacus and wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. Um, you can see it's him all over the place. Totally. You can see it's him. So Spartacus also marking the end of his relationship with Kirk Douglas. Right. And um, and, and, and you know I, I haven't finished the film, but I, there's no world in which it would get anything less than like a nine. Great. From where I'm at. I mean, and going off what you said, um, I have a similar rela relationship with Barry Lyndon. Um, the, I would say comfortably that the movie that got me into movies was Clockwork Orange. Mm -hmm. I watched Clockwork Orange in sixth grade or seventh grade. Sure. And that was the first, that intro shot was the first time it occurred to me that like, oh, like the way the camera moves and the way they implement score can make me feel uncomfortable sure. and can really elevate the process and made me start paying attention to movies in that way. So I went down this deep Kubrick rabbit hole and Barry Lyndon... Similarly, I got the box set, and Barry Lyndon was always hanging over my head. Yeah. It was just, just like the plot. Like, I'm just not a period piece person to begin Me with. Me neither. Especially at age 15, I was not a period piece person right. when at the same time my other favorite movies would have been like Fight Club. Right. Um, and I, tr I tried to watch it, and I fell asleep the first time. Right. And for years and years I've been saying you know I, I, watch I, Barry I love every Kubrick film yeah. besides Barry Lyndon sure and just like man growing up you become so much more cynical like there sure. was there was no way that I could have at that age seen the humor that exists throughout that entire right. movie or throughout m most of his films yeah I mean there is this cynical sense of humor that it takes a certain experiential age to fully accept and see. I mean, like, if you would have shown me Dr. Strangelove as a kid, and I don't mean a teenager, but a child, yeah, yeah. I would have no conception of, of the totally, irony totally. Um, therein. And, um, you know, one thing that also kept me from, this is going to sound really stupid, but this is why we have a podcast where we tell the truth. Um, one thing that kept me from Barry Lyndon when I was a kid was that I thought that Stanley Kubrick was British. This was before yeah. Wikipedia yeah, existed. Yeah. I also thought that Stanley Kubrick was British. And if you watch his body of work and don't have the ability to look him up or watch anything about him, 
there's no not a more European or or British sensibility totally. given to an American film than you'll find I in any of not. his films. I thought Kubrick was British until like three years ago. Yeah, and it, it is shocking because, and you know, really anything that you discover about Stanley Kubrick opens up a door where you're like, my God, he's the greatest. Yeah, um, it makes me feel like a total failure. There's no world in which like. Yeah, I mean, it, it's that vibe that he gives off of just this classical nature where it is simply impossible to reason in my mind how the guy who made Eyes Wide Shut in the 90s is the guy who made Spartacus right, right. in the fucking early 60s. Like, yeah. in the late 50s, basically, he was filming it. Um, so, yeah, um, for me, I, I thought that, oh, this is just a British guy finally hunkering down on the most British-looking movie yeah, exactly. you could ever create, which is which funny. I do, I, I do want to quickly touch upon, you were talking about the clarity of film looking so much higher in Spartacus compared right. to Barry Lyndon. I do want to point out that this movie was... Barry Lyndon was not supposed to look clear. It was meant to look like a painting. Yes, and we'll, we'll get into the aesthetics of how that was achieved shortly, but I mean just... It's just incredible. It's not a knock on Barry Lyndon. Yeah. It's really just an, a, a a comment that it is truly incredible. And he was how, a master with lighting. How bang on black and white stock. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, which brings us next to 1962's Lolita. Right, I love Lolita. Yeah, I mean, great movie, yeah. great book, great movie. Yeah, um, Peter Sellers. I don't really like have anything I can say about Lolita other than like. It's not the first Kubrick movie that you should unfurl if you need to go on this journey, but if it's not in the list, you're fucking blown. Yeah, and also a movie that takes on very different meanings when you watch it as a teenager versus watching it as an right. adult. And I have not revisited it in probably 15 years, so I sh I, I'm due to do that, but in, in high school, it was all it about seems, that It seems right up the alley for the podcast. Yeah, it would seems, but it's like <laughs> the, the best version of the, the nonsense that we do. Um, that, that is a movie that touched deeply into my longing as a teenager, which we've touched upon in this podcast, that teenage longing kind of connects you to films that... Uh, and by longing, I mean, like, extreme sexual frustration that every young Jewish boy feels uh, uh, in the early teens of their life, regardless of how much tail they get at Hebrew camp. Um, <laughs> and um, and so, yeah, that movie really, uh, really egged me on. And I, I also really appreciated the fact that it was Kubrick working in a smaller space, yeah. which is very rare yeah. for him. It's, um, a very, it's a very small film. Could be said that it is the most similar film to Eyes Wide Shut that he has in its provocative nature. And the fact that it is focused so tightly on a small group of people and not like a, the Roman Prussian War or something fucking insane. Um, I'd probably give that argument more to Clockwork Orange, but I see Clockwork what you're Orange is a sci fi dystopian film that is huge scale and has giant ramifications and uses sci fi technology and. Um, I don't see them at all. I mean, yes, there is an, an integral small unit of characters that you're following, and by, by that I mean even you could say that it's just Alex's story, but that is a grandiose film. Look at the first shot of that film. That film is meant to be blasted on a gigantic screen. This is Lolita and Eyes Wide Shut are a little quieter pieces than I think anything that he I think I need to rewatch Eyes Wide Shut because my recollection of it is being is being full of grand hallways and things to look at on the giant screen. That is true. I'll give Massive it to you. That is shots. true, but it's an intimate story between two characters and their relationship. Totally. Um, which we'll get into. In okay. All right. Well, next up we got 1964's Dr. Strangelove. Right. Or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Um, One of my favorite comedies ever. One of my yeah. favorite political satires ever. I do not, and still not, as we've discussed on this podcast, 
can find a world in which I would ever choose that as the first best of his films. That being said, I think it's perfect. Yeah, we definitely film. debated that. I think we can, and it does have its trademarks. We, we can comfortably say that I like it more than you do, right? Um, Doctor Strange Love, yeah, but it's this splitting hairs at that point. Yeah, yeah, like we both love this movie. I've seen it in theaters. Yeah, um, and we should do tell to tell of these movies which we've seen in theaters. I've seen two, three Kubrick movies in theaters that okay. I can think of. One of which. Is Doctor Strange I've seen three as well. And I will argue that while 2001 is critical to see on the big screen, that Doctor Strange Love is one of the most, um, one of one of, you get the most gifts out of watching it on the big screen yeah. of many of his films because you just don't realize like the how gorgeously on it's the, filmed. On the, yeah, I uh, I saw Doctor Strange Love at the Philly Film Center in 35 millimeter. The war room scenes are just fucking spectacular. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, Doctor Strange Love is my second favorite film of all time. Um, I could not tell you how many times I've watched that movie. That was the first time I ever watched a black and white movie and ever felt that it compared and exceeded modern movies. It completely fucking floored me. It was totally formative in my view of the U.S. military. Um... I just, and again, a film that felt to me like a British person yeah. looking at, and maybe it's just the fact that so many of his films are ironically looking at the subject that, of course, you would think, well, this is an American. Like, no American would look at Americans like this I right. mean, as a child or as somebody yeah. who isn't very cynical. Yeah, I, I when I first saw Doctor Strangelove, absolutely thought that this is a foreigner's view of American idiosyncrasies. Totally. When's the last time you watched it? In theaters, um, in, at the Ambler Cinema, um, probably ten years ago at this point. I was like at the beginning of my college career. Okay. I came home for a break. I saw I was playing there. I went by myself and fucking. That's awesome. I just loved it. I mean, I just love that movie. All right. The last time and Peter I watched Sellers it, Peter Sellers is a fucking god. Yeah. The end. The last time <laughs> I watched it was three weeks ago. Okay. Um, I watch it sometime around. Some would say you have a ritualistic relationship you with Doctor Strangelove. Yeah. Big Lebowski and Doctor Strangelove get watched around my birthday pretty much every year. Because it, it's pretty rare that I can, when, you know, I have a group of people over and we're trying to pick a movie that I can, like, sell them on. Let's watch this 60s black and white, extremely slow paced for the first half satire that takes a giant turn into pure wackiness out of nowhere like it's a hard sell for people it is and arguably some of these movies are hard sell for people yeah but I just it's so such as Eyes Wide Show fucking hard sell for my wife guys (laughs) hard sell dude Strange Love is just so fucking funny the entire time like one of the best comedies ever and like you know as I get older there's more and more things that I don't I never realized were jokes also his tendency to, and, and any director in that situation would have brought in all of these modern references and now anachronistic jokes that Kubrick, it's like he knew with every movie that he made just what not to do to date himself. Totally. And I don't know how that, that foresight was developed in him, but just go watch 2001. That is a movie that is going to hold up in cinemas forever. Yeah. And it's like, no matter how many advancements you have, I mean, this is the first guy to try it and you knocked it out of the fucking park and it's just incredible to see so many of his movies take that route where it's like you know easily a lot of Peter Sellers movies from the 60s just look at like Casino Royale 
it's so stupid. I mean, the jokes are fine, or Pink Panther. Like, the jokes are fine. His performance is always, has a ton of levity and is just so great, but dated, terribly dated, much like any movie from those, you know, periods of time. Kubrick movies thus far from the 50s and 60s that I've seen are fucking golden, baby. Dude, the character of Dr. Strangelove is so fucking inherently comedic. Just like, and like, when I was a kid, I didn't, like, I couldn't fully grasp that he, like, I didn't know the American history of hiring former Nazis for right. high up government positions mm-hmm. and all of his subtle just like he can't he can't he keeps calling the president Fuhrer yes, like it's so fucking it's so good dude it's so funny it's like um, that movie is like if Mel Brooks like would have like actually made a movie in his career instead yeah, right. of like spoofier you know yeah. I love Mel Brooks but like that's look at the comparison between you know a movie like that and a movie in, of like History of the World Part 1 or stuff like that where yeah it's all about the director and um who would have thought that Stanley Kubrick could have put together something so outwardly funny at Dude, the time? Dude, and the balls of a guy in the dead middle of the Cold War right. to make a film in which, like, spoofing a, the Cold a War. central <laughs> plot point is an American general ordering his entire platoon to gun down any American soldiers that approach their compound. Right. And and Mwah! and and that character to have no actual arc like ultimately he just kills himself right totally like seemingly out of nowhere in the film like it just it shows the futility it's just a movie that shows the futility of all of our fucking intergovernmental conflicts that's a perfect movie I recommend anyone who has not watched Dr. Strangelove the way the way I actually ended up watching Dr. Strangelove is I was at Regal remember in the 90s uh, Regal Cinemas if you got there super early before the trailers they'd put up like trivia and stuff Mm -hmm. on the screens of course um they, there was a, what was the longest title to ever win Best Picture? Sure. And uh, it was that. And I was like, that's a really long, wacky title. And I went home. And I was like, I want to rent this. Mm-hmm. And we rented that. And my dad was like, really? Like, I'm like fuck yeah. Loved it. Hell yeah. All right, so that brings us off the trivia, baby. to next we are, now Now we're entering the, uh, now, we're, now we're cooking with gas in the Kubrick filmography. Now we're in the, uh, there's several years between films. So, four years later, we got 2001 Space Odyssey, 1968. Okay. What uh, what can be said about 2001? This is the greatest sci-fi movie ever yeah. fucking made. This um, movie looks ten times better than half of the movies we watched today. This movie has incredible, um, incredible powers of ambiguity that Kubrick attacks with all of his adaptations. Nowhere else in the history of fucking time does a director adapt from books and jump from the script and themes and narrative structure of said books, whether it's The Shining that pissed off Stephen King yeah, so much that he moved away from it. Everybody who accuses Stanley Kubrick, and this is the worst criticism anyone can have of Stanley Kubrick, I level level this at Chris Nolan if you need to for anyone, but anyone who says that Stanley Kubrick is this cold, cold clinician yeah. doesn't realize that every one of his adaptations that he took that angle on, he did so so that you would feel things instead of be told them. Totally. Um, 2001 Space Odyssey, the book, and its sequel, and the sequel film are all extremely literal. It's like, here's why the monolith exists. This is exactly the purpose of the monolith. This is the purpose of... Um, the astronaut, when he turns to the star child at the end of the book in the first uh, movie, he, um, you know, they break it down in no uncertain scientific terms. Stanley Kubrick, whether it's The Shining or this, or Barry Lyndon, 
took a very specific source material and just zoomed out yeah. and was like, what is it about these things that is actually compelling? Okay, so you don't have Jack Nicholson crying about being lonely for two hours in The Shining. Right. Instead, you just have him staring out a window. Totally. And which one of those is more effective and timeless and, and unforgettable? And like, fuck anybody that comes into a Stanley Kubrick movie or discussion being like, mm, he's just so cold. Like, yeah, I don't know what the fuck is happening at the end of 2001, but if you don't feel in the pit of your gut, like you're being ripped through the fabric of space and time, then you're not doing it right. Yeah. I mean, and you're also watching a film that is jettisoning you into the most cold, lifeless fucking environment possible. Sure. Like, Now, there is a discussion to be had, and honestly, this could take up an entire podcast, but there's all this like meta stuff that Stanley Kubrick does um, where he is trying to, in all of his films, say things about himself and his place in the world and how he thinks about it, and it's almost in every single one of his movies. And there are certain things that I just find so fascinating about, like, 2001... Who is the most human character in 2001? Hal. Hal 9000. Yeah. Every one of the astronauts speaks stilted, frozen language to each other. The most human element is Hal 9000, yeah. and yet everyone who watches that movie wrong is like, oh, Hal, the dangerous robot, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Hal is the only person who modifies his behavior yeah. in the film to um, reflect the importance of what of the work that they're doing. Yeah. Hal is the only human in that movie. I'd much prefer to watch that on your giant TV than what we're about to watch. <laughs> what, is, um, what is principally the story of AI? AI is, um, as Stanley Kubrick himself said, is going to be his first family film. Um, and while he didn't get to make it, just look at what AI is about. AI is about a robot trying to figure out how to be a human being. Right. There's so many, yes, he is a cold uh, clinical director in some senses, but you can see his humanity in so many yeah. of his films. 2001, I would will admit, because of its structure and the jumps that it takes in time, it is his it, coldest it, it, film. It's a challenging picture for sure, it's but if anyone's going to critique Kubrick under that lens and then turn around and be a fan of anything that Chris Nolan has done, sure. then go fuck yourself. And also, and this is one of the most hyperbolic statements I'll ever make in a, in a podcast predicated upon hyper, hyperbolic statements, yeah. but 2001 A Space Odyssey is, is basically, to me, like a, you know, uh, I just recently watched the Bee Gees documentary, and the Bee Gees documentary, <laughs> Barry Gibb was talking what about how... Sick. Many artists, many musicians, and they back this up with a bunch of people in interviews, but they feel as if their biggest hits aren't things that they created, but kind of pulled out of the ether. Um, and a lot of artists, and I know from my own personal inspiration, when I do certain things, it's like, yes, I've done this on purpose to do da-da-da. And then there were certain times in my artistic life where I created something, and I was like, I don't even know how I just did that, but it exists. Totally. It's wonderful. It's succinct. It's amazing. It's a piece of art. Totally. Um, and... 2001 is like plucked from the gods. Every single element of that film imbues the viewer in so many emotional um, depths and valleys. I mean, you can watch the movie like, oh, here are a bunch of monkeys like beating on a, um, a on a rock, but like the first ten minutes of that movie is is the whole of human history summated. Yeah. It is the whole of humanity um, summarized. It's just. And it, 2001 is just literal ecstasy. Yeah. People it's just don't have patience for a movie that doesn't have dialogue for the first 40 minutes. Sure. But if you are a person who has ever seen a science fiction film and you've never seen 2001, just fuck off. Yeah. So should we, like, real quick... Like, 12 out of 10. Yeah. So 12 out of 10. You give 
Alright, and what did you give Lolita? Lolita's like an 8.75. Okay, Doctor Strange Love? Like a 9. Okay, obviously I give that a 10 out of 10. 2001, you give it 12 out of 10. 12 out of 10. Okay. Hard 2001 out of 10 All for, right. for 2000. I'll give 2001 a 10 out of 10. Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, how could you make a better movie yeah. than 2001? Yeah. Hell yeah. So, dude, the, when they first see the monolith and they're on, they're at the moon base, this, and I just want to say, it's my last thing here, this is one of my favorite moments in all of movie history. Um, they're at the moon base and they're uncovering the monolith um, in a ge- in, in like a geological dig. And there's this two-minute section where you're following the astronauts walk into the plaza where the monolith is. Yes. And the music is just like... Yeah. <laughs> And this, like this is was the beginning of the fucking that Kubrick music. Yeah, sure, and like stark, <laughs> abrasive, abstract ideas the music coming there in. that is there to make your fucking balls hurt. Um, that scene is terrifying, and no one can explain why. I mean, you have <laughs> astronauts that are just taking a walk, and and you know the monolith doesn't kill them, and yeah. we, we we don't know that the monolith is evil or good. There's no the mystery. The movie just dude, the creates inherent senses of dread. Yes. Like, and you will not find dread like that moment and in The Shining as a whole yeah. the dread is the star of The Shining totally. I mean I challenge anyone to find movies that imbue more dread than even Kubrick movies that aren't horror or sci-fi based there are moments that are like oh my fucking god like that is wrenching to watch so. Yeah, which brings us to 1971's A Clockwork Orange sure um, Clockwork Orange is a great movie but I there is a dated aspect to it there is an extremely 70s um, production design, filming, the lensing, the lighting. Like when he's in the candy shop um, and he's like buying lollipops or whatever the fuck he's doing in that one <laughs> scene. That just looks like a, a music video from like H&R Puff and stuff yeah, era yeah. 70s. So like that is my only fault that I could ascribe to it. Um, other than that, it's like Fight Club where it's one of the movies that every man um, who has the sense of what testosterone is or what the male mind, you know, asks of you or makes you do. I mean, it's about impulse. It's just like, I mean, it's one of the rawest movies ever. Oh, yeah. Um, it is Especially not Especially for, for that to be his film after 2001. Sure. Why, I mean, what... So ballsy. I, but also... And talk about a, a movie that exceeds the book in every way. Right. I mean, I read the book and it is gobbledygook. <laughs> the, the, the dialogue in that book is bizarre. Um, and it's like a thing that you kind of have to unlock and enjoy. And a lot of that dialogue makes it in the movie. It's just like a mean-spirited movie. Totally. I, I find it hard to say, like, I love it in the way that I love 2001. Um, I love its iconography. I love its performances. Great movie. Not going to fault it. I would give it like a 9.25. I will give Clockwork Orange also a 10 out of 10. The score for that is amazing. I listen to it all the time. What do you think about, like, the whole found score thing for him? That Just him using so much pre-existent music. Do you like, um... Do you like that? And music across the same movies, right? I mean, were there not some musical cues from Barry Lyndon that were in other Kubrick movies? Yes, there and was certain one, classical I pieces. Um, I like it because Kubrick's knowledge of classical music was so deep. Right. That he made classical music famous. Yeah, like which the is thing, insane. Like <laughs> through two thousand and one, to this day, like I said, Clockwork Orange was like the movie that got me into movies. Like that was also the movie that made me not think my grandparents were super lame, and maybe there was something in this whole classical music thing, and I should check it out. Like right. Be- Beethoven's Ninth to this day. Like sure, I have this Beethoven box set on vinyl, and the first thing I always go to is the the sides that have the ninth. Mm-hmm. 
and I listen to it, and I, you know, then it makes me relate to that character of Alex. Like, I, I feel... Right. I feel the emotion. It was the first time that, like, let me open my heart and mind to that type of music mm-hmm. and instrumentation, and, like, especially something like Barry Lyndon that combines... I, I believe the original music cues for that are very sparse, but they are very deliberate. There's a lot of harpsichord stuff going on that, like... I think I think Barry Lyndon is, like, 2001, where there's, like, a couple things that were made for it, and then the rest is, like just yeah. found uh, classical music. I'm not positive. I don't, don't I, I, that, but... I, How could you criticize it? It works so well. It makes the pieces feel like they were made for the film. There's like this... Yeah, I mean, there's... Yeah. Except for A Clockwork Orange, where they're like constantly referencing the pieces yeah. that are playing. There's just something about A Clockwork Orange that f- it doesn't fully congeal for me sometimes. Um, but it's a, it's a fucking great movie. I mean, what do you want? Yeah. What do you want to split hairs about here? Right. You know, it's a fucking great movie. I just don't think it's his best. Okay. So next we got Barry Lyndon. Should we just skip that? We'll just skip Barry Lyndon. All right. Next we got five years later, 1980s, The Shining. All right. I, I don't need to even talk about this movie. Ten, yeah. Ten we talked. Ten. To, we, yeah. We did a whole episode we've done, on Doctor Sleep. We've done Sleep. it to death. Yeah. You don't get a, a better horror movie than this. It just doesn't exist. Yeah. The, the dread right. is. Mwah. Now we're now we're gonna get interesting. We're at the final two films of his career. Okay. We have a seven year gap. Which is there anything sadder than how many gaps he took in his career? I just I wish can I think had of plenty one. of things sadder than that. I wish I could have seen AI by Stanley Kubrick, not by Steven Spielberg. Yeah, I mean Spielberg should have fucking ruined that movie. <laughs> yeah. For sure. That movie sucks dick. <laughs> I wouldn't say it sucks dick. It's just like it all I can you can see all the elements of it that were like, oh, this is what Stanley wanted to do, and then you're, yeah. and then you I just can don't see understand how someone who so closely idolized his career and took such inspiration from Kubrick didn't get it could then collaborate <laughs> and be so intimately involved in the produ- pre-production process of this film and then proceed to make a movie that feels. Just, that just does not have any of Kubrick's life, or, like, yeah. the thumbprints are all there, hidden. Yeah. It's just a matter of, um, the, 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 Stanley Kubrick couldn't have made, um, you know, certain films that Steven Spielberg made, not in a million years. Like, Stanley Kubrick wasn't gonna direct fucking Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park. yeah. Um, but I'm glad someone did. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Stanley Kubrick wasn't gonna make, uh, fucking Catch Me If You Can. The, the difference is Kubrick is not a commercial director, and Steven Spielberg and Francis Ford Coppola, at least in his earlier career, the latter, are commercial directors. Yeah. And And you could find the best guitarist in the world. You could find the best drummer in the world. But is that drummer gonna sound as good as Ringo on certain tracks? Ringo's terrible. Yeah. So it's just... But it sounds great banging around on She Said, She Said. Yeah, it's a matter of perspective and voice, I would say, more than anything. And no matter how close to Kubrick he was, Steven Spielberg is not, like, suddenly gonna understand how to make, like, a Stanley Kubrick movie. No one could. And no one ever has, so... Yeah, I just... (laughs) I felt such anticipation for AI and I was like if anyone could pull this off it I would did be enjoy Spielberg it at the time, to a degree but I just feel like it missed the mark entirely and I don't understand how him of all people missed it that badly well who knows what the original would have been like totally that's another shit. question that's I mean, another I question it, but okay so what are we on uh we are at 1987's Full Metal Jacket okay <laughs> 10 I give the first half of Full Metal Jacket a 10 out of 10. Right. I give the second half of Full Metal Jacket an 8 out of 10. Comparatively, the second half of Full Metal Jacket is a lesser experience, and there are better war films from that era era that did 
do it better. Um, it's the second half of that film is not iconic. The first half is yeah. deeply iconic. So I hear you. It's just like what I cannot. I'm, I would try to find a complaint about it. I just yeah. Don't know. It Junior year of high school, sophomore year of high school. I watched Full Metal Jacket on Mushrooms. And then going from <laughs> going from Full Metal Jacket to what the next one is, is Eyes Wide Shut, yeah? Yes. What a fucking flex that is. Uh, 12 years later. Jesus Christ, he was chilling. Yeah. Doing something. Eyes Wide Shut was in pre-production from like 92 <laughs> forward. I, I know that a lot of people are going to be like, well, he wasn't taking breaks. And I, I actually will recognize that that is true. Um, that between all of these movies... He and some of the biggest directors, stars, and writers of God's green earth of all time got together to make movies, and they would just fall apart. Right. Uh, there were so many unmade Kubrick films. That is the tragedy that I'm referring to. Yeah. Not that the dude was, like, on a private island, but that, much like Guillermo del Toro, where you look at his filmography and you're like, fine, but then you look at the things that he had tried yeah, to make. didn't he say he has, like, a hundred hours of on... There's so... Dude, Guillermo del Toro, yeah. I mean, he was going to make The Hobbit, he was going to make Mouths of Madness, he was going to make um, so many movies that just kind of gotten taken out of his hands, and God, I'm not comparing him to Stanley Kubrick in his art at, at all. Um, not that I don't love Pacific Rim, but, um, uh, yeah, no thanks. Did um, Guillermo del Toro make Pacific Rim? He did. What? Yeah, he's a director of Pacific Rim. And it's so that, him. That's interesting. so him. Ron Perlman's in it. Uh, it's got his, yeah, it's know. got his handwriting all over it. I had it. no idea. Uh, and he loves giant monsters. I stuff. always saw Pacific Rim as just like a fucking... That's why I love Pacific Rim, honestly. I, I always viewed it as a Guillermo del Toro picture. Anyway. That's good to know. Um... Uh, yeah, um, so yeah, the things that he didn't do were as prolific, uh, Stanley Kubrick as the things that he did. It's just a shame that we didn't get more, um, because that break in between, um, you know, Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut is basically, like, an entire decade of film went by. Yeah. So, so that's kind of sad. Um, yeah, we only got to see one modern produced Kubrick picture. Eyes Wide Shut is a movie that... I, as a high schooler with the box set, thought it was one of the best movies I've ever seen. Um, again, longing, sexual frustration, dread. These are things that connected me to a lot of movies as a kid, and Eyes Wide Shut is a huge example of that. Um, I just rewatched it last week with Rachel. Um, my takeaway from this most, pers m most uh, recent viewing is that uh, <laughs> a few things. Firstly, it is in my mind, probably the worst Stanley Kubrick movie. Like, not by a lot or anything, but um, it. there's no world in which I'd be convinced otherwise, unless you showed me one that I haven't seen that right. is somehow much worse. Um, it is got just a tremendous amount of like things that I don't love. Um, Nicole Kidman is absent in the movie. She's in like 12 minutes of the entire movie, which right. I... Uh, thinking about it, I would never have said that. I would have been like, yeah, it's equal equal shared screen time. It's mostly a movie about Tom Cruise walking around trying to get a nut off and not being able to achieve it. Yeah. Um, and everywhere he goes... Now, if you would have said to me two weeks ago, tell me the plot of Eyes Wide Shut, I would have said Tom Cruise and his wife have some kind of disagreement. I don't really remember what it was. He goes out for a night of debauchery. He has sex with all these women, gets in all these situations with prostitutes, and then he gets to this huge mansion where there's a sex party, and he's like in an orgy. And, and re-watching it, you come to see that he does not have sex with anyone. That... Every time he goes to have sex, he's thwarted, 
and and like when he tries to have sex with the prostitute they kiss and then he has to leave because his wife calls him then he comes back to fuck the prostitute a night later she's not there the roommate's there and the roommate tells her that uh, something tragic has happened to the prostitute then he goes out and he tries to go to the sex party does go to the sex party but he doesn't engage in any sexual acts he's basically just teased and tortured and I think a lot of the movie is about like not being able to get a nut off and like going out and like trying to get your fucking rocks off and it not happening and that becomes frustrating and yes it's a movie about marriage and as a kid I was like this is the most mature view of marriage that anybody could ever blah 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 somebody who was fucking 15 didn't right. understand the first thing about any of that um, now it's a, a, a it's a ridiculous movie I mean Rachel and I were watching it you're seeing a couple um that is gorgeous, that has everything in this world, that has a happy family, a marriage with children, that is sexually shown in the movie to be happy. They're fucking in the first 15 scenes of the movie. So why as the viewer would I think that this is an unsex uh, like unsuccessful relationship? Right. Um, then they smoke a joint and Nicole Kidman um, unloads this story onto Tom Cruise where she basically is proving to him that she is something to be jealous of. Whereas he's like, oh, I'm not jealous of you. I trust you. I this, I that. And she's like, well, you trust me. And she's all high. And she's like, this is what really happened. A year ago, I went to this place and I saw this naval officer and I wanted to fuck him. And all I could think about was fucking him. And she tells this story and it goes on for a hot six or seven minutes. Right. To the point where Rachel turned to me and she's like, why, why is this woman just straight up destroying her marriage? Yeah. As a kid, I was like, oh, Nicole's telling Tom a story because they have this tete-a-tete back and forth about like, ooh, and I'll show you and blah, blah, blah. But that's not a relationship dynamic that I sympathize with because while a lot of a relationship can be um, tit for tat, you never sit your partner down and go, by the way, like, I spent a whole night fantasizing of fucking this guy's brains out. It's all I wanted to do. And if he would have asked me right then and there, would I go with him for the rest of my life? I would have left everything. That's not a conversation yeah, you have when you're right. stoned. Yeah. And, like, they show her as this really wild character who, like, Okay, she says all this shit to Tom. She she says it on with the same vibe as Demi Moore at the uh, yeah at the uh, disclosure yeah in disclosure <laughs> when they're at the table and he's she's just like I love getting fucked. It was, <laughs> yeah, it, it just didn't it didn't age well. Um, the things that I appreciate about it are that it was shot fully in England and that it, none of it was in New York and that they did an unreal job of recreating two blocks of New York City street that they filmed the whole movie on. That like, cause Stanley Kubrick didn't want to leave. Yeah, he was like, I'm not going to America. It's yeah. too much. And God bless him. He was about to die, so he knew what he was capable of. Um, but yeah, it's it's a movie that, um, in doing some supplemental reading, I've discovered. You know, they were shooting to make this kind of European love story type thing. And of all the genres that Stanley Kubrick has conquered, that was one he hadn't played around in. Considering his European sensibilities, I understand what he wanted to achieve. I just don't think it's done very well. Yeah, I haven't watched it's it embarrassing in quite a while. But yeah. I mean, it looks, you know, I'm not here to say it doesn't function as a film. Right. Um, it is more gorgeous than any movie you'll ever see. Yeah. But um, that doesn't do everything. Yeah, but when you're talking we'll about the master, like, he can do that with his eyes closed. He can make a good looking picture without effort. Right. I remember. Distinctly. And that question will spill over to Barry Lyndon because Barry Lyndon is historically known as his most beautiful picture. Right. So is that going to be enough to save it from. The cold clinical Kubrick side, um, I don't know, but um, yeah, I've, I haven't watched Eyes Wide Shut in quite a bit, but I vividly recall it being the first time that I had watched a Kubrick picture and noticed flaws throughout, mm -hmm. 
and felt detached from the characters in a way that made me actively not like them, rather than feel like it was an intentional... Agreed. Um, like, voyeur... There's I, no extra level of irony happening. Yeah. It's not like you watch Tom Cruise and you're like, oh, he's so stupid, he's an American doctor, this is how they act. There's no irony. This is, like, actually your protagonist. Yeah, right. He's a piece of shit. Yeah, you're just... Yeah, it's a movie full of, like, there's no one to root for. No. Everyone's behavior is Both ludicrous. members of the couple are terrible to each yeah. other. And it just doesn't make sense. There's no precedence for it. The um, first time I watched it, unlike you, I really, really hated it. Um, I yeah, rewatched it. I rewatched it again in college, and I liked it a bit more. But I still thought it was just generally kind of a stupid movie. Um, it is beautiful to look at. The um, Tom Cruise is very good in it, but just uh, this is a movie that I feel is earns the cold removed criticisms and it's a it's a movie that feels that cold while presenting itself as a love story right yeah that's the problem with it is that it's sold to you as the most human Kubrick film yeah and you go into it and you're like mm. and I'm like I want to kill both of these characters yeah and it's sad because like he spent a tremendous amount of time with Tom and Nicole like devising the film and there are points in my life where I have loved it it's just like mm. I don't think so about this one anymore. I'd give it a 7 out of 10. Yeah, I was going to say a 7 as well. And if it wasn't Kubrick, it would be like a 6. Yeah, right. Which I don't want to say, but like... Yeah. But it deserves its recognition. Uh, yeah, I'm fine with it. All right, so what I wanted to do real quick was just... So what would you say, like, run down... It's tough with, like, a filmography like this. Just, like, what are your top five, Kubrick? For me, they're all just f fucking... I mean, and... you. Know, it's just for me, 2001 and The Shining. Okay. Those are the two movies that engulf all of his sensibilities. And, and it's two sides of a delicious fucking plate where you just have insane batshit uh, genre hopping. You have adapting source material and doing amazing things with it. You have this, like, otherworldly, non-American point of view being used. Um... Both are films that, yeah, just do everything for me. So it's really those two, and then everything else kind of sitting uh, comfortably under it. Um, granted, we're not talking about Barry Lyndon. Um, yeah. Okay, I feel that. Because that's how I, f I feel that way about Strange Love and The Shining. Sure. Those are the, the elite tier. Then, like, just below that is 2001 and Clockwork Orange. And so, then every, yeah. everything else is, like, besides Eyes Wide Shut. And possibly Barry Lyndon, we'll find out. Ooh! All right, so should we, should we move on? So we're going to move on, which is going to involve talking about the 1975 film, our centerpiece of the day, uh, Barry Lyndon. Now we are going to review 1975's Barry Lyndon, the movie more, you've all been waiting for. More importantly... <laughs> Um, the real question on my mind is that, is this going to, um, beat Fletch for the only decently re reviewed movie of the entire season? Um, God, I hope so. Uh, now, Dan's sitting by the official Movie Blues board. Again, we are in room with each other for once. Dan, what, what did Fletch get? Fletch got a 16.4 out of 20. Okay, cumulative, 16.4. Yeah. So... Far and away... The best score of the season. Yeah. The only thing that came close was Tenet, and Tenet right. only came close because Dan liked it so much. God damn it. Well, you know, 
uh, RIP to anything that isn't Fletch. Um, when we do Fletch Lives next season, which I, I honestly don't even know if we're going to do a next season. I think we're just going to... The joke will be season three. It's just the rest of the show. I, Yeah, I think it would be really funny if... I want to be on, like, season three, episode 120. Yeah, but it would also be funny if we get to that point and still, far and away, the highest rated movie is Fletch. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so Dan and I have had the moratorium on, which is when we do not tell each other um, what each other thought of the movie that we watched. We try to keep all information as hidden as we can. Usually when the movie's really bad, it doesn't go well because we start complaining to each other because... Of all things, our two-way back and forth in our free time is mostly complaints. Um, <laughs> so, um, as with most Jews, yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, we're gonna see if we can answer that question as well as can we answer if is this an elite Stanley Kubrick movie? Is this top five? Is this top three? Is this a bad movie? We're gonna find out. Um, I feel like the last time we and if, actually, if there's anyone who's an authority on the matter, it's us. Without a doubt. Yeah. You wouldn't be listening to this if you didn't think so. Yeah. Um, After our seminal viral review of Little Italy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the episode to break into the 40s within six months of release. Um, <laughs> nailed it. Um, Barry Lyndon. Yes. 10 out of 10 for me. Really? Um, this was one of the best movies I've ever seen in my entire life. I absolutely am in love with this movie. I want to crack this movie open and fuck it. This movie blew me away, um, maybe for reasons that are not the reasons that a normal movie would impress a person, something that took a little bit more legwork. Um, But (laughs) of all of the people that have told me, and a lot of people have told me that Barry Lyndon is either their favorite movie from Stanley Kubrick, I never once thought that, that was anything but an edgelord opinion um, <laughs> and could not be possibly true. Martin Scorsese and Lars von Trier both say that yes. Barry Lyndon is their favorite Kubrick movie. And I, it's worth noting that you brought up Barry Lyndon. We hadn't discussed it at all. And in a very shocking twist of fate, I said to Dan, oh, I'm already planning on watching that next week. Yes, that's how it came up originally. Like all things in the movie Blues Universe, that's kismet, baby. Yeah. <laughs> that's jazz. That's so, the universe calling out to Barry Gibb and me to um, just fucking slay it. Because I have been, as, as we all know, I, I like to sit and watch my long, slow, drawn-out foreign pictures. Right, which if you somehow complain about this movie, right. it, it almost doesn't work. For you to not like this movie, but I do think, I, I feel like you're going to have a, a more tempered reaction to it. Believe me, there was a part of me that thought about that. Sure. Um, and I, so so lately I've been like, you know what? I really, like, I'm constantly going back to watch Strange Love. I'm constantly going back and throwing on The Shining. I'm always throwing Clockwork Orange on. Like, I've watched these movies literally uncountable times at this point. And... Yeah, right in the middle. And I'm always just like, wow, that era of Kubrick is such a big stretch. Even Full Metal Jacket, I watched it 20, 30 times in my life. Like, that stretch of Kubrick is just so good. And every time I look, like, which one do I want to watch today? I see right smack in the middle, Barry fucking Lyndon. Mm-hmm. And it's been haunting me and hanging over my head for fucking years. Because mm-hmm. I'm just like, same. I, like, the, <laughs> Literally. Fir- the first time I put it on in high school, um, I. I I fell asleep. I fell asleep within 20 minutes. 
I tried again in college. I watched the whole thing. Um, and I was bored to fucking tears. But I was just like, I've always known that there was something that I missed. Like, I was just like, there's no way that it's bad. Right. And I would read these things about Scorsese saying it's his favorite, and I'm like, really, is it your favorite? Or are you just trying to be all fucking worldly? Right. Like, so I, I had it on my Plex. I took the effort to seek it out and download it, not realizing wow, that it was on what, HBO Max. What a gargantuan effort that sounds like. Man. No, I, the, just the <laughs> fact that I had already done that by the time I you suggested you. I, it. I know what you're trying to say. Like, you had already suggested it, and it had okay. been, it, at that point it had been two months probably of every time it was time to pick a movie between the two of us I'd bring up at like Barry Lyndon so Dan what did you think of 1975's Barry Lyndon wow just cut me off mid fucking mid story huh um, I'm gonna give Barry Lyndon like a 9.5 out of 10 okay. 9 out of 10 like right. it's incredible okay it's, yeah <laughs> it's, it's like it's incredible it's not yeah, it's not sure. like it's not like I don't love it it's like it's probably a 10 out of 10 like yeah. when we're talking about at this point with his filmography we're splitting hairs of favorite versus best right. so like if my favorites are strange love in the shining yeah. like if i'm gonna like was i riveted was i so fucking engaged in the balls of this movie um did i discover threads that i can directly tie from this movie to some of my favorite films of all time like absolutely mm-hmm next week when I'm looking for something to throw on in the background mm-hmm. like it's not it's gonna, not be, gonna very be very <laughs> I disagree um, I, I cannot wait to watch this movie again now that I know where it's going and and, and now that I've ruminated on the themes um, let me tell you one of my favorite things that a movie can possibly do um, there are movies like Pixar's Soul that I recently watched where they in no uncertain terms break down every theme ascribe rules to it like make quantify it over explain it to death like there's nothing better than a fucking movie that has theme in it that has messaging in it that doesn't fucking need to jam it into your face when you can watch a movie and you know whether it's a thousand movies about the rise of a man to success to eventual ruin there are a million movies that go that route there are some that are far more literal than others you very easily could have had the movie be like Barry Lyndon in like a jail cell with one leg being like and here's how it happened to me Um, (laughs) this is like now granted the first like two scenes of this movie I wasn't very into it because I didn't I just didn't know what the fuck was going on he was trying to fuck his cousin it was all very new to me that scene yeah Um, that scene scene was like just poor I whatever Um, that woman's breasts were Magnificent. Yeah, they're, they're real good. Um, the the bottom line is this. It was um, like a painting of breasts. This is a movie that is in two halves with an intermission in between. I sat through the entire thing and did not stop at once. I sat through the intermission and listened to all the music and then kept going. Um, this is like the most sumptuous feast of a meal that you could ever imagine. Um, no, no one makes movies like this. Like No one um, takes the time to create, honestly, just portrait after portrait in this movie um obviously stanley kubrick's intent with the aesthetics is to mirror 1800s era painting um he does that 1700s it was the 1700s was it the 18th century where did i get the number 18 from there we go close enough um (laughs) um uh, the recreation uh, from a technical level of these paintings, there are some actual paintings that he has recreated in the film. I don't know if you yeah, saw yeah. But 
Um, even if there weren't... I too read the Wikipedia page. Even if there weren't direct grabs, um, the cinematography on display in this movie is absolutely fucking... Bonkers. Wild. The lighting is fucking the lighting. stupid. The lighting is naturally done. Kubrick tried to not use any artificial light. He ended up using it in like 25% of the movie. Um, but in the scenes where he is not, in the, in the intimate scenes of candlelight, in the different ways that he uses just these old 18th century environments and their natural lighting scheme. It is gorgeous to look at. Um, I, I just love about him, like, the fucking balls on him throughout when looking at his filmography, looking at each picture to the next picture. Like, right. to have done the streak that he did and then this be, you know, have there be a four-year gap where everyone's like, oh, man, can't wait, like, for the next Kubrick movie, like... The balls for this to be what you fucking throw out there. Right. I, dude, he's just, he's a fucking G, man. It's a, dude, it, dude, this Nobody movie. else could <laughs> make, nobody else so could make this movie interesting. Um, there are so many things about this movie that need to be discussed. Like, for me, as I was kind of hinting at before, like, the themes are what really gripped me the most. Like, there's so many things going on in the background of an otherwise simplistic movie about an Irish immigrant who moves through society vis-a-vis war, vis-a-vis cheating, gambling, stealing, getting stolen from. It's 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 got a it's got a very it's a guy like, trying to live above his class. Yeah, it's it's got a very like rags to riches feel if you need to boil it down to like a genre cliche, but the themes going on in the background about the decisions that you make and the ramifications of those decisions, whether it be short-term or long-term, is incredible. I mean, you watch a man who, through his passion, unravels himself, and then all of the, the, the passion that he's used to get to that point, you know, whether it's people he's stolen from, cheated, uh, done terrible things to along the way, comes home to roost in the second part of the film, which, like, if you look at it on paper, the first part of the film includes war and bloodshed and incredible action moments and just things like that. The second doesn't, and yet the second is so much more gruesome to right. watch. totally. Um, I mean, it's just a guy who cannot get out of his own way. Yes. It's about fleeting decision-making, impulse control. This is a guy, like, over-infatuation, just, like... Everything a man is subject to. Yeah, everything which you in our discussion grip with of and his films. With how many time. of them include that as their central? Yeah, PC? it's just like it's it. If you could see why the book of this that this is based on was a comedy, because right. it is ultimately a story of a bumbling fucking fool who manages to bumfuck his way into every positive situation he could while tripping himself in the process. Right, like. And every time he achieves another notch in the belt and another rung in the ladder, he, he immediately becomes distanced from it. Every time you think, okay, he's like, all right, here's the part of the movie where he's, like, going to be, like, a human being. And he, like, has real love. Right. Like, just the second he marries her, uh, he just... That, dude, that... He just starts blowing smoke that, Dude, <laughs> that changeover was when I was like, okay, what is... Like, there is something... A secret going on in the background totally. of this movie that is, is, that is running the pivotal the scene in the movie to me, I feel. Um, that is an amazing theme to explore. Um, everything that we just talked about is definitely there, but then you have other incredible themes that are being explored about the cultural place in which the movie kind of is set. Um, and you have the 
entrance of chivalry and an upper crust snobbery of uh, British royalty coming head to head with the brutalism of anything that has come before that. Um, the, the movie's central conceit and repeating theme is the duel. Um, uh, the main character is first, his father is shown being killed in a duel. Um, then the main character's first inciting element to his growth and movement in the plot is a duel that he spurs on over loving his cousin and needing to fight a general. The movie then goes for hours and comes back around to a final duel between Barry Lyndon and his half-son, his stepson. His stepson. Um, and um, the thing about the duel that is so incredible to hang the entire film on is that as it is portrayed, as many things are portrayed in this film, um, the aristocracy, the way that they solved their problems was so brutal. Like, Dude. And, and at the same time, it's so juxtaposed to their behavior so that when it comes to an argument and they have to resolve it, like, what, what, like here's a funny uh, interjection because this episode is not funny at all. Um, my friend who just got out of uh, prison for being wrongfully accused of murder was telling me about what it was like to be in San Quentin. Um, and he was describing that... Uh, I think it was San Quentin. I'm sorry, Jesse. I know you're listening to the podcast now, but one of your fucking shitholes that you had to die in, um, <laughs> that, that there was no fist fighting, that the only way you would resolve your problem, you come to a leader of your gang and you say, uh, you know, I don't like Dan. I want to fight him. And um, you're put in a room with that person. You're both given knives and only one person walks out. And it prevents, oh prevents violence. Did he participate in that? No. It prevents violence in the rest of the prison because everyone knows that if you start a problem with someone, that you is You better the be ready to fucking die for it. Now, that is the most brutal thing you can imagine. That's like what's going on in the American prison system yeah. was how aristocrats were solving their problems yeah. back then. Um, and to see these men duel... Where and just like the and scene, and it's not like American dueling where it's like one, two, three, you no. both go at once. Okay, so imagine Wild Wild West uh, dueling, right? You have two guys that aren't reaching for their gun yet, and at once they reach into their holster, they release their gun, they fire at each other. This is you are literally down the barrel with another human being. You're both already pointed at each other. I mean, I, I was blown away by this. You're both already pointed yeah. at each other, and then they're like, "Okay, shoot at each other." But but the, the, they're they're like. But like one at a time. One, yeah, they're like whoever wins the flip of the coin gets to shoot first. It's unreal. They're like, it's are just you an execution, to... dude. It's so. It's not a duel at all. The amount of times I turned to Cat and I said the 1700s were so fucking stupid, just like culturally, right. and she'd be like, "Yeah, same now." Yeah, but, and I'd be like, "Well, isn't that touche, another point?" Touche. Yeah. But like the dude, what a fucking goofy way of life, like. The need for satisfaction. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, mean, I I long to get in a situation where I'm begging for satisfaction. That's like been my thing since this. Um, but apparently the way you achieve satisfaction is by gambling on whether or not... Like, dude, this movie is full of people just being so brazen and starting shit with people and then immediately reverting it to chicken shit cowards. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean it, 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 it also is, you know, something that goes back and forth on male machismo and on how men solve problems it's it's just i mean uh, the you know to get back to like the the brutal aspect of it you have a scene in this movie um you know and you're you're shown that these people are trying to be civilized to an extent so that they have certain rules and certain ways of acting that are just like insane. <laughs> um, there's a scene in which there's an invading army. There's like a, one of the biggest skirmishes in the movie, um, 
And you have um, Ryan O'Neill, who plays Barry Lyndon and his army, marching down the field to attack another. But because of, like, stuffy British military tactic, um, uh, they can't start shooting until hundreds of them have already been mowed down. The French are on the other side kneeled already firing at them yes but because they have to be formed in a line because they have to be marching like fucking idiots they literally let row and row of of soldier die with no rebuttal whatsoever because to them they're still marching there's musicians still playing drums Drums, It's, it's 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 the perfect microcosm of so many of the male resolved power struggles and issues in this movie where it's just like the stuffiness of aristocracy mixing with how you really need to solve a fucking problem is wild yeah this movie movie. really drives home how like there needed to be in terms of like human cultural advancement there needed to be a moment where people were literally like no we're acting irrationally like let's just do the smarter thing right like it was very timely because all right, Aaron Wheeler, if you're listening, here's the best moment of 2021 for you. He's listening. I've been yeah, I've been watching The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did it finally. We watched the second one. Everyone fucking told me to get my balls ready for that damn battle at the Dan end. Dan Lyons did not though. That's true. Dan Lyons told you that the second one was gonna be boring as fuck. It was so boring. Yeah. But whatever. Everyone was going crazy about that <laughs> battle. And I've been talking a lot lately. I think I've mentioned it to you a couple of times, but I've been talking to Cat when we've been going back over Lord of the Rings about just like how stupid war used to be. Like now it's still stupid conceptually, but at least the way that we perpetrate it makes sense. Like everyone acts in a way that is designed to have the fewest amount of your team die and the most amount of the other team die. Like, and I would just be like, I'm not interested in medieval battles because it's ultimately just a numbers game. Whoever had the most people to throw at the situation with the assumption that most of you are going to get mowed down, you win. So that scene, we were watching this thing last night, and we get to that scene where these, it's just dudes getting mowed down after mowed down because of their, like, in their bizarre cultural need for honor yeah. to, like, just walk in a single file line. It's not even honor, it's, like, fancy shit. Yeah. It's so Yeah, gay. it's, like, war is, war is glorious and, like, so war is, like, ro- it's, like, ro- so romantic that right. you need to, like, go down like a gentleman and you're right. just watching, like, alright, so this version of war is just, like, alright, who could re- bribe the most peasants to stand in a line and get shot? And then you think about the fact that they have no medics that can do anything. They've been like, keeping these people alive and training them and feeding them for fucking years. And then they actually get into a battle in the first three lines. Like, literally need to commit suicide. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And that makes me think of, like, what a chicken shit bitch I am. Because, like, imagine oh, being in the first, oh, like, five I, lines. I, I of- thought that people were going to start fleeing. And they were <laughs> all just go into it. Yeah. And, and then and you have a part in which... The only general that we've been shown to actually like as a character goes down in this fashion. Yeah. That he, Barry's uncle, I believe, uh, it was, or, like, he was, like, a detached family member yeah. of some kind. It was his only friend, really, in the entire yeah. movie. Um, uh, that he is one of the people that's just, like, marching, just march, 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 straight yeah. to your fucking death. And, you know, and like, you're seeing everyone around you get shot and die, and yet you still march straight on. And, and I'm not, like, saying, like, okay, there's been plenty of times in military history where people are, you know, like, D-Day, heading headlong into yeah. a situation where everyone's that dying. That is not this. But that's, that is not this. They're trying to at least, they're, they're trying like literally, to not get shot. Yeah, they're literally just, like, too proud to fucking live. Yeah. It's so stupid. <laughs> um... All right, so um, yeah, that that is an incredible theme that goes throughout, which is great because that is Barry. Then that's when Barry becomes a deserter. Is right. right after that scene, which is it's a great contrast to 
it, it's like what that in that moment I was like, what is this movie trying to say? Because I feel like it's just a constant critique of that aristocratic culture of the time. Yeah. Yet the person that we're being forced to root for is at always undermining that by being kind of a, what they would see as a sleaze ball. Sure. Um, yet. They're what not I doing saw is they're, an absolute genius. They're not doing anything to make you like that character yeah. either. So, yeah. like, is this just, like, the most cynical movie I've ever seen in history? Did you sympathize? Like, did you empathize with Barry Lyndon as a character? Did you did you see yourself in him at all? I mean, did you find any... There, there were moments more so in the first half. Mm-hmm. But, uh, like, there were definitely... Definitely more so in the first there half. There were definitely moments where I, it made me reflect on my tendency throughout my life to self-sabotage. Right, which this another theme that this movie is huge on is self-sabotage. Yeah, but then it just, just it, then yourself. it just got to like a fucking comedic degree. Like once yeah. he one the moment when he finally like <laughs> nails down this <laughs> when woman. When he finally becomes rich. Yeah, like basically. all he wants to do is be rich. He falls in love at first sight with the most gorgeous woman you've ever seen right. who, who happens to be married to a dude who's like <laughs> one step away from Stephen Hawking. Right. And all he has to do is wait it out. And not only that, he starts banging her before her husband dies. And then this se- it says he waits a year. He waits a year, gets married, and literally as they're like leaving the fucking wedding, <laughs> the voiceover narration is basically, and now he fucking hates her. Yeah. <laughs> now he's a dick. Yeah. Um, and, and that changeover was sad to see because I thought he had finally made his way into the upper crust of society and found what he wanted but as this movie you know hammers home quite a few times like getting what you want and also getting the riches of the world like has an enormous price Um, and for someone like Barry Lyndon who is so haphazard and ridiculous in the way that he achieves these things um, he gets punished big time Um, and the second half of the film is basically his punishment but in that punishment I think that it revealed more themes that are at play, more things that I found really amazing about this movie, such as um, the themes of just father figures, of of emulating your father, of emulating other men when you have a lack of a father. Um, and there's so much of that in the movie. There's so much of Barry meeting a man, whether it's his uncle first, whether it's the Chevalier, whether it's... Um, the guy that he ends up spying for in the French government, wh- or uh, whether it's, um, you know... That and, is the Chevalier. But the guy that he spies for also oh, is a oh, father okay. figure to him. Yeah, um, yeah. The guy who kind of calls him the, out. The guy who figures out that he's an imposter. Um, and then you have things in the movie happening, such as a, f- a father, when he becomes a father, not learning from the mistakes... No, he learns nothing. Of, ...of his life, but how accurate that is to reality. Horrible to his stepson, then completely overbearing and overgiving to his real son. And then you watch his stepson go through a cycle where he becomes exactly like young Barry Lyndon, where he's moving with passion, yeah. he's not seeing... The long term calling of for duels that he's in no business calling for <laughs> him, especially in no business. I um, just found it bizarre in the first scene, like to get to that first duel, like the first scene where his cousin's trying to seduce him or whatever. Mm-hmm. He's seeming so terrified of the situation and just so chicken shit. Yeah, it was and weird, then it's just weirdly portrayed. Then moments scene. later, he's like so overly brazen and throwing fucking glasses, like drinking glasses at fucking yeah. British officers. I mean, and, I think yeah, they were trying to show just how. Just totally how fucking rational. off the handle he is right yeah. off the bat. And, I, I also and that th- a lot of young men in his position are, I'm sure, were or are. What I found most hilarious about this movie was that it was constantly beating you over the head, either telling you what was about to happen, which is such a ballsy thing, right. or 
constantly foreshadowing its own plot devices. Like, there's the obvious one where, you know, the intermission, the title scroll will blatantly say, like, here's all the misfortune that's about to happen in part two, or how everything falls to shit. But But the voiceover narration was constantly telling you what was going to happen. Like, it tells you that it's almost the beginning of part two, the voiceover narration says, um, fortunately for him, he will end up both penniless and childless, as you're, like, walking or seeing him with his kid. Yeah. Like, you're like, all right, the kid's gonna die. Like, right. there's no reason for the movie to tell me that an hour before it happens, uh-huh. but it does. Like, and in the first scene, um, when they're, or in the first act, whatever, the first vignette, I guess it's just a series of vignettes is the movie, really. Like, mm. the first half especially. Um, he's like, um, I'd sooner go to hell than go to Dublin. Because, like, they, yeah. were, they, they were literally like, yo, we'll pay you to leave this area. We'll pay you for the rest of your life. All right. you have to do is go chill in Dublin. He's like, I'd sooner go to hell than go to Dublin. Love so instead, what he does is start a duel, which the result of which is that he has to go escape to Dublin. He's yeah. just forced to Dublin immediately. And the yeah. movie is full of that, just things like... Full of it. Like him, like, uh, making a decision to avoid or get around something, causing that to happen upon yeah. him, and yet still 100% advancing. of the time. Um, there's a lot about just... Determinism. There's a lot about existentialism, fate, things like that flying throughout. That like a lot of the things that Barry gets involved in are a circumstance of just the whirlwind that is his life, yeah. and that you know he he's not a character that like you can pin like a, many constants on. Um, and his temperament and ideas about the world change pretty rapidly throughout the movie, and it, you know either evolve or devolve. But like. I love old Barry Lyndon. Yeah. I love like old beating his stepson drunk all day Barry Lyndon. <laughs> like he first of all Ryan O'Neill. Oh my god. Yeah. Like how Ryan O'Neill didn't have a better acting career after this movie is yeah. pretty puzzling. Um but um Ryan O'Neill fucking slays this movie. Yeah. Like he's so good in it and <laughs> he plays all of his all of Barry Lyndon's like most embarrassing traits perfectly. Um this movie's loaded with irony. Like the Stanley Kubrick genius level irony that only he could possess um it's so funny but like not outwardly it's plot is so jagged and satisfying and like things happen in the movie that are just like what like just wild Um, dude i just feel like entire books could be written about the voiceover narration yeah i there's so few movies i can think of that voiceover adds to like Mm -hmm. I always I always view it as a crutch right and like my go-to thought of like the only movie that I feel like the voiceover is like a real character and makes the movie elevated is like Royal Tenenbaums and that movie is covered in influence from Barry Lyndon yeah like watching throughout I was just like oh my god this movie just the way the 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 dry humor of the voiceover narration it's like they're exactly the same yeah the voiceover is very similar they're like abrasive foreshadowing of the voiceover narration and just like with the harpsichord music in the background the whole time right it's all so fucking inspired by and in the novel that it was based on uh it's very specifically voiceovered as well but by barry linden um, and it was Kubrick's choice to draw that back and have it be an omniscient narrator, which, good choice. Yeah. Because, wow. Yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. Like, it went, when the narration so started like out, I was like, uh, I don't know. And then as it went on, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. This is, this is funny. Because they're speaking in, like, old-timey British <laughs> speak where, like, it's very hard to stay focused on it and focus on what's going on on the screen at the same time. Right. It's just, like, such an unnatural cadence of speaking, and there's a lot of 
turns of phrase and patterns of speech that are antiquated at this point that like there were numerous moments where it's like when you read Shakespeare or like or like watch a Shakespeare play mm. you, like you're just like wait what the fuck did that phrase just mean and you realize all it meant was like draw your sword but they have to say it in some like elaborate metaphor right. so the voiceover is like constantly doing that yeah. and then there'd be moments where I'd think about what he just said and I'm like wait did he just say fucking like A like talk shit on Barry Lyndon like take a jab at him without <laughs> even realizing and then B like tell me four things that were about to happen in the plot and then like the next scene would happen and it would be exactly what he had described he would always be like and as you were about to see yeah, yeah. it's just such a fucking ballsy move especially I, knowing I that that's the not from the book I think the movie needed it though like I think that without the narration it would have played pretty similar for me um but it was very enjoyable. I mean, it. I, I didn't need hilarious. so many things forecasted for me. I would have liked to. No, have seen, nobody needs anything. I would have liked to have seen Barry you. Lyndon kind of ruin himself on his own. But it would have come through either way. Um, and um, it, the movie does not allow you to have a moment of hope for the character. Every time you are <laughs> right. you are shown a turn or a growth, right? The movie immediately reminds you, like, no, this character's gonna fuck himself, I promise. Yeah, and fuck himself he does. Um, He ends up in a duel uh, with Lord Bullingdon, uh, (laughs) his fantastically portrayed uh, stepson, um, who is deeply rebellious uh, to his papa and gets beat by him uh, with a belt all the time and like that's a movie blues thing for sure um, yeah, and, but he uh, also like beat the shit out of his little stepbrother because he was like looking for a pencil <laughs> I, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it but uh, the the final duel in this movie <laughs> is one of the most compelling scenes just ever put into a movie it is like 12 minutes maybe yeah. of, of grown men staring at each other <laughs> <laughs> but it will fucking harrow you deeply just, because it's just the unbelievable. of everyone is just so ridiculous. L- Lord Bullingdon's <laughs> acting in that scene is some of my favorite. Like that, I I know the feelings that he's feeling in that, and it's just so beautiful to see a movie just so ballsy, dude. Yeah, just the way he comes. Like that's the final act of a three-hour war movie. Right. Like, on paper, it should be something so different, and it's so good. He comes so brazenly. Like, he has his little meeting with all... <laughs> it's it, got, the recent explosions. accidentally goes off. And he, he's like, <laughs> he's like, I know what I must do. And he goes and holds his fucking cane and drunk Barry Lyndon's fucking neck and challenges him to the he's duel. Like, oh, I seek satisfaction. And then as soon as it fu- he finds out that he doesn't get to shoot first, he just, like, starts vomiting. He's terrified. He cowers immediately. Um... I could I could continue. Also, to... nobody is listening to this episode who hasn't seen the movie. No one is going to listen to the Barry Lyndon. <laughs> well, dude, two weeks or a week ago, I would have been that guy if I were a fan of my own podcast and was separate from myself yeah. in an alternate universe. Yeah. So, um, anyone who's scrolling, like, oh, what did the movie Blues do this week? Yeah. Barry Lyndon. They're going to look up. Pass! They're going to look up the thumbnail and they're going to they're going to see <laughs> that thumbnail and then see that it's over three hours. <laughs> period, <laughs> period piece. Um. This movie is at the highest level of my recommendation. Um, it was a perfect cinema experience. It was truly art. It was fucking genius on all the levels it needed to be. It was hilarious. It was sexy. It was iconic. It was just ah, 10 out of 10 for me. What's your scoreboard? You want to actually write it on the thing now that we're doing this IRL, buddy? Yeah. And I guess we've beaten Fletch. Sorry, Dylan. Yeah, I would have to give it a 6.3 to make it not <laughs> how would that feel <laughs> I'm considering um, what's your final score on that one bud a 9 I'm not at the mic that was a 9 I'm giving it a 9 
fine. O- only because... What's the one? Explain the one. The one is... I felt that there were a handful... And it's really me splitting hairs of coming down to. I didn't enjoy it as much as I like Strange Love and the Shining. That um, doesn't. That's not supposed to be. But that just not. That's not hours. I there were there were. I don't feel that it needed to be three hours. I felt there were. You know, Kubrick loves these long two shots and these long close ups of someone's face, and I'm just saying they didn't all need to be quite this long. I didn't need necessarily need to constantly be told what was about to happen. That felt a little, like, I respect the balls of, like, antagonizing yeah. your audience that way. But it is what it but is. But once I found out that that's not an aspect of the book, it's something that he deliberately created, yeah. I was just like, the, the part of that I find genius, but part of it rubs me the wrong way. Right. So, it's basically, it comes down to something like The Shining and Strangelove I see as perfect films. I don't see a single flaws in them at all. Right. This... It comes down to, like, next week I probably am not going to want to watch Barry Lyndon again. Fair I will enough. want to watch it again in a couple years, probably. I'm going but back the movie ASAP. asks a lot of you. This and Tenet are the two gifts of this season for me. Actual movies I would watch again. What, what else do we do? Fast Five? Yeah, never again. That's not <laughs> ever happening. Yeah. Um, should we do another one of those soon? I feel like we should. Uh, should we do one of them right now? Oh, my God. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it's, it's weird. Like, I I don't want to give it a 10 out of 10 because I didn't like it as much as I like the pictures of his I like the most, but I can't, like, put my finger yeah. on why. I would then, you know, bump it up. 9.11. All right. I'm just kidding. Don't, don't I'm not going to do that. All right. Well, uh, if you like this episode, go out to your local blockbuster where you can rent Barry Lyndon. Um, Anything else it's you'd also like to on say? H- it's on HBO Max. Oh, oh, is it? Yeah. Cool. Check it out there. And um, damn, what a good movie. Fuck. Yeah. God. Let's follow this up with something even better. Yeah. This is not a Something movie. from a real director. This is not a movie directors. to throw on to talk during. Like, this is a movie to sit down and fucking yeah, watch. Yeah, you cannot... Yeah, th- uh, as with pretty much any Stanley Kubrick movie. Yeah. But Jesus Christ, watch this movie. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Dan, you want to... I don't know, something with it, like... Like, beat your baby. I don't, like... Uh, <laughs> I don't even know what to do for this one. You want to, like, just send your baby to Dublin? Because it, <laughs> it was naughty? Not Dan, you want to challenge this baby to a duel? Uh, I demand satisfaction, yeah, sir! I demand satisfaction from this baby. Baby!